something greater, something greater than anything we can imagine here on earth. We had a, a chili dinner cook-off yesterday, dessert cook-off. Um, I got the winning chili. I don't know how the losers did, but uh, the winner was really great from the leftovers I got. Um, and we have something even greater than the best chili on earth, and that's what we're going to talk about. There's a story about a little boy uh, who got on the elevator with his father to go to the Empire State Building, and they were going uh, to the observation deck. That's at the, the very top where they could view the city. And as the, the elevator uh, it ascended, and the boy he watched the, the signs on the floors flash by, and there, there was 10, and then there's 20 and 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and the farther they went up, the more nervous the boy became. Finally, he looked up at his dad and he said, Daddy, does God know we're coming? <laughs> and this morning we're going to talk about what heaven is like. And the first thing I want to point out is this, God knows we're coming. Jesus said, as Noah read for us there in John 14, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You know, God knows we're coming, and he's prepared a room just for you. You could go to the greatest places on earth, the most expensive hotels on the face of the planet, and you're never going to experience such a, a glorious room as the one God has set aside just for you. And many people want to go there. In fact, almost every religion has some concept of what heaven is. It's been called paradise and utopia and nirvana and Asgard and Zion and city of David and uh, the new Jerusalem. It's a city and a country, a kingdom, uh, the city of God, the happy hunting grounds, the sweet by and by, uh, the streets paved with gold, the walls made of jasper, pearls, and all kinds of precious jewels, as one novelist put it. And the reason that heaven is so universally believed in is because God wants it to be. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has placed inside of us this idea that there's got to be more than this, that as great as things can be here, as good of a week as we just had, there is something even better. There's something even greater than what we can grasp Right now, there's got to be a place where God rewards those who love him. And of course, a place where God punishes those who don't. So what will heaven be like? Well, oddly enough, the Bible doesn't tell us too much about that. In fact, Paul implies that, that when he got to see heaven, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter in 2 Corinthians 12.4. Now, other religions, they have very explicit descriptions of what heaven is going to be like. The Quran's very uh, explicit about what heaven will be like for those followers. Much of Muslim teachings about heaven's based on the stories of Muhammad when he went uh, supposedly on his miraculous journey that he had there. And the Buddhists, they had many paradises, as many as there are Buddhas. And each enlightened being has their own personal heaven. And there are various gods and goddesses that inhabit a series of heavens all their own. They have very explicit teachings on what heaven is going to be. And we could go on and on and, and describe what these various religions ha have described heaven being like. But our faith, 
The faith that we find in scriptures, what we want to root ourselves in, that we've talking, been talking about all through the month of October, says comparatively little about what heaven is going to be like outside of some pretty cryptic statements uh, about will, what will and won't be there. And you've got to expect that because no matter what you and I think heaven will be like, whatever we can grasp with our imaginations, God tells us that's just a pathetic shadow of reality, you know, what it's actually going to be like. Now, if you were to ask me what heaven would be like, I could probably think of something. You know, I'm in, in this uh, spectacular place. I imagine that God's going to give me a bowl, a manna. I don't know exactly what that tastes like, but I want to try it. I get to see the reruns of all the great stories of the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea, the day the sun stood still in the sky, the day Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. I get to see, I get to understand those things. But all of my imaginations about what heaven will be like can't even come close to touching the glory and the majesty and the awe that we'll feel when we get there. Now, here's the deal. The Bible doesn't get very descriptive about heaven. It doesn't tell us the color of the curtains and the carpets. It doesn't tell us what uh, pictures will be on the walls. Instead, God gives us images, word pictures, that help us have a feeling of what heaven will be like. For example, the Bible tells us that heaven is up, that it's up somewhere. Eh, you'd think that'd be obvious, but skeptics have attacked that for years. They've scoffed, scoffed and they've asked, you know, where exactly is this heaven of yours? Is it up there in the, the stratosphere somewhere, somewhere I can put a satellite up high enough and find it maybe? Is it on the outskirts of our solar system? Is it in a, a distant galaxy you know, on the other side of the universe maybe? Back in the, the 60s, uh, the Russian cosmonaut, he mocked our faith. He just returned from his trip into space up, and he scoffed that he hadn't seen God while he was there. And someone heard about that and joked, well, if you would have gotten out of your spacesuit for a second, you would have found him. <laughs> oh, that was so funny when I found that. <laughs> but I suspect that's, that's not the point. And I suspect God uses this idea of heaven being up not some place that, that we're going to travel up to uh, while we're still in these bodies. He uses this, like, this concept of, of up to tell us about himself and what heaven will be like. You see, up isn't really where God dwells anywhere. He's, he's everywhere. Solomon said, who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? In 2 Chronicles 2.6. And David noted, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my beds in the depths, though, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In Psalm 139.8-10. God is everywhere. But the Bible it talks about God being up in heaven. Now, why would it do that? Well, studying for this, I ran across three verses that I think illustrate why. Psalm 14, 2, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Second Chronicles 6, 21, it says, Listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place, meaning the temple, and listen from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
And Deuteronomy 26, 15, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us. You know, this idea that God is looking down from heaven, I believe it, is there to help us understand that God is in a position to see everything and to look down into our lives and bless all of us. Nothing is beyond his power. He is everywhere, but he is also above. It doesn't really matter where heaven is exactly. All that matters is that we realize how high and how powerful, uh, how high and how uh, uh, the, maj- the majesty our eternal life will be. And a lot of uh, imagery about heaven and scripture is like that. They're, they're word pictures. Revelation uh, speaks of gates made of a, a single pearl and, and streets made of gold so that it's so pure that you can see through it. Now, I, I suppose there, there could be a, a pearl so huge that you could use it for a gate and, and gold uh, perhaps could be so pure that it's transparent. But, but I'm convinced these images, they aren't meant to be taken literally. I'm convinced they're descriptions that God uses to impress us with the beauty and the, the awe that we'll feel when we see this place. And I believe God uses such Im- imagery because there's nothing we have encountered on earth that can allow us to wrap our minds around this. There, there's nothing we've ever seen, nothing we've ever experienced here on earth that's ever going to prepare us for what heaven will be like. Because heaven will be so different from anything that we have ever experienced here on earth. So I don't know exactly where heaven is or exactly what it looks like but i do know what will be there in heaven and what won't be there revelation 21 for example tells us what won't be there it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes there'll be no more death no mourning or crying or pain the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives it light On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 21, uh, verses 4 through 27. There's no death, there's no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no people who hurt you or make you feel insecure or threatened. There'll be a lot of things missing from heaven, things that we experience here on earth that are frustrating and make life uncomfortable, make life even dangerous. One poet spoke of heaven this way. He says, no dust, no rust, no rats, no rot, no rackets rock, no potent pot, no growing old with weakened sight, no dentures slipping when you bite, no bombs, no guns, no courts, no jails, where all succeed and no one fails. No strikes, no layoffs, full employment, and everyone with job enjoyment. All tell the truth, they state only facts, no wars, no debts, no income tax. According to this dream of mine, in heaven, no one stands in line. There are only smiling faces and lots and lots of parking places. (laughs) So that's what won't be there. But what will be in heaven? What can we truly expect? Well, first... There's going to be a lot of singing. There's going to be a lot of worship up there. Revelation tells us every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, we're singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever, Revelation 5.13. 
And I've heard of, of people, they read that in Revelation, and they, I mean, we can see worship here. This is something we can wrap our minds around, what worship looks like. And so they come to the conclusion that this, all this worship, all this singing, is going to get a little boring after a while. It won't, though. You have ever gotten up in the morning and, you know, sometimes we, we set it as the alarm ringtone, right, that, that wakes us up. There's just a song that makes us want to get up. Um, in the jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. That was mine for a while. The song, the song that you listen to, and that's the song that just gets you going. That's what worship in heaven will be like. The songs that you hear and the worship you'll experience will fill you with joy and excitement that you'll wish it will never stop. And it won't have to because God says that there's never night. There, there will be this kind of joy and pleasure that can go on and on and never stop. It won't be boring in heaven, but heaven won't be the same old stuff all the time. In heaven, every time you turn around, you'll practically run into something that's new and exciting. God says, behold, I make all things new. I think that's partly because it's not this type of boredom that we expect. For God, it will be a priority to make things new. And heaven's not... Uh, it says in Luke 18, or excuse me, Luke 13, in heaven we'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. You know, when we get to heaven, we'll get to see these people that we've read about. We'll get to talk to them, Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses and Rahab and Paul and Peter and on and on. And you can imagine the stories that they're going to be able to tell us. I'd love to sit around uh, and talk to Jonah for a little while. I got a, a bit of it this week. You know, what's it like to sit in the belly of a fish. And I, I really believe I think I'm going to get that, that bowl of manna maybe while I listen to them talk. It, and it, it will be able to sit around these people and, and get to see people uh, we've known there, the people that we've loved, we've cared for while we've lived on earth. When Jesus took Peter and James and John up on the mountain, Elijah and, and, and Moses appeared to them. And now these people, Moses and Elijah, they had died ages before, right? How would they know them? How would they recognize them? Peter knew who they were, though. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah in Matthew 17, 4. Now, if Peter could recognize Moses and Elijah, we'd never met, never had a chance of meeting, you can count on the fact that we'll be able to recognize our loved ones who died in Christ, Christians, but they'll be a little different than how we remember them. And so will we. Paul wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. Yeah, I will be able to recognize you. You'll be changed, 
but I'll know who you are. You'll be able to recognize me even though we have been changed. Once we reach heaven, we will be imperishable, immortal, eternal, we'll live forever. But there is one more thing we'll see in heaven. And that one more thing will make all the, the wonders and the glories of heaven seem pale by comparison. And that one more thing will be even more important to us than our family and our friends and our loved ones and the, these uh, great people of God who have gone before us. You know, Job said it this way in Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I can't explain why that will excite you and I so much, but it will. It'll be like walking into a room, seeing someone you've always respected, someone you've always cared about, someone you've always loved entering into that room and looking at you, and you can tell that they're glad that you're there. And that's just a, an inkling of what it will be like to see Jesus. All he'll have to do is look at you, and you'll know it has been worth the wait. You wouldn't have had it any other way. And that is what the Bible is all about. It's about preparing us for that moment. And that's the greatest thing that we can give to those people in our community. That hymn that we're so familiar with calls this just a great day. Says there's a great day coming, a great day coming, there's a great day coming by and by, and when the saints and the sinners will be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to come? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for that judgment day? You know, rather than elaborate descriptions of what heaven will be, that is the repeated question throughout Scripture. Are you ready? In fact, one of the major teachings of Jesus was you need to be ready. For example, Jesus told the story uh, of the ten virgins who were uh, part of a, a wedding ceremony, right? And back then, marriages were more, or weddings were more elaborate than the ones we have today. Part of the ceremony required that the bridegroom would parade through the city by night and fetch his bride from her father's house and take her to the wedding party uh, at the parents' house. And part of that wedding procession included the, the virgins Jesus spoke of. They were kind of like bridesmaids. And Jesus explained that as these women were waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, five of them were very foolish. They didn't have any extra oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise because they had brought enough oil just in case. And it was a good thing, too, because the bridegroom was delayed. And by the time people shouted that he was coming, the five foolish women were nearly out of oil for their lamps, and, and they begged the other five to give them some of their oil. But the wise uh, women answered that, that they wouldn't uh, have enough for all of them, and, and that the, the five foolish girls would have to get some for themselves. And while they were gone, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went to him with, to, the, to the wedding feast, uh, and the door was shut. And afterward, the, the foolish women came, and they asked the bridegroom to let them in, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. You know, Jesus closed that parable with these words, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. You know, again and again, Jesus warns us, be ready. There's something incredible just across the door. 
But we have to be ready for it. Peter tells us that very same message. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 2 Peter 3, 10 through 11. In other words, be ready. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when that happens, there will be no more time to prepare. If you're not ready, that ship will have sailed, and there won't be another one ever. But how do you prepare for that kind of trip, this trip to heaven? Well, you don't have to get a passport. You don't have to uh, get any shots. Um, I went to the doctor, and they asked me, um, if I had my flu shot yet. And I was like, isn't it a little late for that? But <laughs> you don't have to do uh, anything like that to get ready for this kind of trip. But Peter does tell us how to prepare. First, he says, to be ready to go, we need to be holy. We need to be godly people. But what does that mean? It's not that hard. Holy means set apart. Godly means that you live for God. And if you put those two together, Peter's telling us to set our apart from the world to live for God. It's that simple, at least in principle it is. You see, a lot of people struggle with this idea because they love the things of this world more than they love God. One of the saddest statements in the Gospels tells us many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, John 12, 42 through 43. You know, what we depend on says a lot about whether or not we want to live holy and godly lives, or if we just want to blend in with everyone else. If we like our seat in the synagogue more than we like our seat in heaven. I just uh, had a friend, she goes to Hawaii pretty often, um, but they went out there, and apparently one of the undersea cables that provides their internet was cut on their trip and we rely on internet a lot now um, they couldn't buy anything with credit cards for a few days um, I she was posting on Facebook that so they had cellular of some kind but um, it just so much what was in disarray they depended on that internet and and she had this remarkable post after it it was like if only people had that sort of connection with the church if only people had that sort of connection with god if we're even for a day our lives went into such disarray because we're disconnected from that what a difference that would make in this world so here's the deal what do you depend upon for your daily life do you depend on the approval of others or do you depend on god if it, it comes down to a choice, if you lose that approval of others or if you lose your approval of God, which one are you going to choose? And it sounds harsh what Peter's saying here, but listen to these words of Jesus. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven, Matthew 10, 32 through 33. The Apostle John writes, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, that's what it means to live a life of holiness and godliness, to be so much 
in love with God that it doesn't matter what others think, that you are going to set your life apart for him. So first, to prepare yourself for heaven, you need to set yourself apart from the world and follow God. Secondly, though, Peter tells us, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 2 Peter 3, 13 through 14. You know, we should strive, we should be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Excuse me. Catching up with me. We have to be found without spot and blemish. Holiness, we can't be holy, we can't be set apart and still be dirty, stained by sin. It's like going out to, to eat somewhere. You're um, wearing your, your Sunday best, maybe. We're all going to go out to lunch after this uh, and get something to eat. Laura and I like to go to Don Rigo, and Don Rigo has lots of food that you can get on your shirt. And when you're wearing a, a nice white shirt, right, isn't that the worst thing in the world when you get a stain on it? The first thing you want to do is you want to go and scrub it off. You go into the bathroom and try. And that just spreads it around a little bit. So you say, you've got to go home, put it in a box, got to go get the stain remover. Uh, it's embarrassing when you get a stain on that shirt. You don't like it. You don't want it. And so you strive to remove that spot, that blemish. You know, that's the difference between those who are committed to Jesus and those who aren't. You know, those who aren't committed to Jesus, they ignore the spots and the blemishes of their lives. They're kind of like uh, the guy you, you ate with last week, and he comes to dinner uh, this week still wearing the same shirt with the, the stain on it. We've all got a friend like that who does that. He doesn't even try to hide the stains. But those who love Jesus, they know maybe their effort's not going to get rid of that stain, that doesn't mean they don't try. That doesn't refuse, they, they don't refuse to make, or they do refuse to make excuses. They refuse to try and hide the sin. They look for a way to fix it. If you're a Christian and you've sinned, we can turn to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, God calls us to confess our sins and he will be faithful to remove them for us. You know, confession is what God has always asked for his people, but it always seemed to be the hardest thing that he asked for. You remember the story of Adam and Eve, right? Of course you do. They ate of the fruit God commanded them not to eat, and then God comes for a visit. And you remember what Adam and Eve did? They hid. And God asked Adam, where are you? Do you remember what Adam replied? I was hiding because I was naked. And it didn't turn out so well for Adam and Eve. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God comes along and asks him, where's your brother? But Cain hides behind his comment, am I my brother's keeper? That didn't turn out so well for him either. All God asks is that we confess our sins, that we fess up when we've fallen short, and then lean on him to remove that stain. When it's not about hiding our sin or trying to cover it up or uh, putting on a coat to hide that stain we got at Don Rigo. It's about turning to God and saying, listen, I can't cover this up on my own. I need you to make me holy. And lastly, Peter warns us to be careful not to lose our stability. And he says, there are some things, meaning in Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist 
to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability in 2 Peter 3, 16 through 17. That is the focus of scripture. God tells us that we are never going to be able to fully comprehend heaven before we get there. But we can understand how to be ready. We can learn that we need to be holy and godly people. We can learn that we only do that by leaning on him, confessing our sins, not trying to in pride fix ourselves, but turning to God and asking him to fix us, and then not letting ourselves get twisted by false teachings. And that is how we can be ready. That is the focus of scripture. We can understand how to make Jesus our master and yearn to be with him forever. The story is told of the days when, when doctors would go and visit their, their patients at home. Uh, and it was obvious the patient, he didn't have long to live. Uh, and as the doctor was about to leave, the sick man called out to him, Doctor, I'm afraid to die. Can you tell me what lies on the other side? And the doctor was very quiet for a moment. And he said, I don't know. You don't know? You're a Christian man. And you don't know what's on the other side? The doctor's hand was on the handle of the door. You know, the other side was the sound of scratching and whining. And as he opened the door, a dog leaped into the room. He jumped up onto him, you know, licking his face. And it was the doctor's dog. He brought it with him on this visit. And suddenly the doctor realized how to answer this man's question. Because the Bible doesn't give us explicit definitions of what heaven's going to look like. But in that moment, that doctor knew what it was going to be. He said, you see what my dog just did. He's never been in this room before. He didn't know what was inside. He knew nothing except I was here. And when the door opened, he sprang in without fear. I know very little of what's on the other side of death, but I do know one thing. I know my master is there, and that is enough. And when the door opens, I'll pass through with no fear, but with gladness. You know, John 14 gives us the incredible assurance that Jesus has a mansion prepared for us just on the other side of the door. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to a place, I, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. You know, we may not understand everything about heaven. Those disciples that Jesus was talking to, they certainly didn't understand everything yet. And perhaps no person ever really can wrap their minds around God's home. But we know our master is there and that he shows us the way. In verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're ready to walk in the way and the truth and the life, now's the time to come to the front of the room and let yourself be washed for the forgiveness of your sins as we stand.